0: Hello, I'm Hugh Zani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Each episode you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world, its characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens. The Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the many traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and perform. We pay our respects to elders past, present and to our shared future. What makes Mozart's concerto for basset clarinet so captivating? Is it the melody, the tone of the instrument, or perhaps how familiar we are now with this work? Despite Craig Hill's unfortunate late cancellation and the wonderful inclusion of the violin concerto number three in G major in its stead, thank you for joining me and Alan as we take our first look at Mozart and his astonishing concerto for basset clarinet in A major. Hello, Alan. It's lovely to have you here with me today.
1: Hi, Hugh. It's great to be back.
0: Now, in terms of today, um, it's the first time we've actually uh, had a chance to talk about Mozart.
1: Yes, indeed. And isn't that exciting to get into the late 18th century?
0: Well, 13 episodes, this being the 13th, 13 episodes in... And it's the first time we even talk about Herr Wolfgang. Like it's, you know, (laughs) what's What's going going on? What's going on, (laughs) Hugh? I suppose it is tales of Baroque, let's be very clear.
1: (laughs) Well, we can extend that into tales of the Gallant (laughs) and and even maybe what we call the capital C classical style. Yes, indeed. But that's another another whole question in itself. Um, It does seem surprising, though, that we haven't come across Mozart in the the last uh, 12 programs. Uh, so a delight to to get to a whole program, almost an entire program of Mozart this time around.
0: Yes, there is a hint of Bach in there with his um, his eldest son, W.F. Bach, featuring on the program. For many Brandenburg followers and subscribers, Mozart's Clarinet has been a series over two years in the making, which may explain why we haven't gotten to that episode <laughs> That's yet, right. Alan. It was on the cards. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, even though it was initially scheduled uh, to be uh, the second series in 2020, we're going to be hearing Mozart's clarinet um, as our upcoming concert series. And as you would know, Alan, Craig Hill shares a wonderful history with Brandenburg and his renditions of Mozart's clarinet concerto are, are, are much loved and enjoyed. Um, I, I went back into the archives and I, I just had a look at the times that he has actually performed um, with us, and it was the first time was in 1997 as part of an art gallery series. Would you believe that? 1997,
1: Alan. Wow, yeah, 25 years ago. Yeah, it's remarkable. So here's a man who knows this piece inside out and back to front, and that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to actually hearing is uh, Craig playing this piece, which he knows so well, and we. And we know so well, uh, but to see what uh, he brings to it this time around with all that depth of experience and and long familiarity with the piece. Now, do you have any
0: particular memories? Obviously, you have you have seen Craig on stage with Brandenburg performing this before. Um, uh, do you have any memories of, of his performances or of? of, of yes, I concerts? certainly
1: do. Um, I uh, uh, I remember when I first started doing the talks for the Brandenburg, which was way back at the beginning of the 2000s. In fact, 2001, he played the the concerto with um, on the program with uh, the soprano Cindy Zedon, who mm. was doing Mozart arias, and that came out as a wonderful CD uh, of, the, of the concerto. Um, and uh, it was just uh, so glorious at that time. The first time I had heard it played live uh, on the uh, original... I was going to say original instrument. Of course, it's not original in that it's a, a modern uh, copy of an instrument from the time, but it's the kind of clarinet for which Mozart wrote this piece. And there's a whole, of course, fascinating story about the rediscovery of the evidence for exactly how that uh, clarinet was built, how it looked. But it is a different kind of clarinet from the modern one. It has extra bass notes, which a modern clarinet doesn't have. And so all the, the usual performances of the concerto that we hear today with the modern orchestra actually... Don't play the notes that Mozart wrote because a modern clarinet just doesn't have enough low notes to play them. And so that's one of the joys of hearing this piece on the Bassett clarinet, that we get to hear it uh, with all the notes that that Mozart wrote. And so for me, hearing it the first time in 2001 and then again in 2012 uh, was uh, just a a fascinating thing, an an insight not only into hearing the notes as Mozart wrote them, but on the kind of instrument for which he wrote them, which has a subtly different sound from the modern clarinet. And with the period instrument orchestra, uh, there are some real revelations. I think in the way the music sounds
0: and there's quite a lot to unpack there in what you've said Alan Um, it it is a very different sound and and perhaps uh, before we talk about Craig's sound and and the sound of the Brandenburg Orchestra supporting Craig of course before we talk about that we could go back to that special story that you've mentioned now obviously there is a very good story behind this piece and even the instrument that's uh, that's the soloist um, of the of the work, the Basset clarinet that you've mentioned. Um, would you mind, uh, you know, telling us and <laughs> sure, sharing yes. this tale of not quite Baroque but tale of Gallant? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. it is a surprisingly modern story in the sense that um, we had known for a long time that the uh, piece, as Mozart wrote it, uh, can't have been quite as it was passed down to us because there are some obvious places where the solo part has uh, had to be transposed. It sort of leaps up in a place where we'd expect it to go down. And so it was worked out that that was because the instrument for which it was composed actually had more low notes. But nobody knew what that instrument looked like. There were no surviving examples of it of Basset clarinets from the time. And so uh, clarinet makers experimented with uh, making instruments with the extra four notes, but they were really doing it by guesswork because we just had no idea um, exactly how it had been done. And then in 1991, as late as that, there turned up uh, the vital piece of evidence that we needed to show what it was like. Not an actual instrument, but a picture of one. There was a, a quite small engraving of a basset clarinet which was on an advertising flyer for a concert given by Anton Stadler, the ca- the clarinetist for whom Mozart wrote the piece in 1791. Um, after Mozart's death, Stradler went on a concert tour and one of these flyers turned up in Latvia, of all places, yes, where Stadler toured. Yeah. T- to <laughs> and so there's the flyer setting out, you know, what's on the programme and so forth. And there's this little picture of the instrument there at the top of the page. And so from that, of course, it's... It's not extremely detailed, but it uh, gives us a clear enough image that we can see what the shape of the instrument is, that it had a, a surprising kind of bent <coughs> piece on the, the bottom end to give it the extra length of, of tubing to get the low notes. Um, and so for, on that basis, it's been possible for modern makers to reconstruct the kind of instrument for which Mozart wrote the piece. And Craig Hill was one of the first Players in modern times to adopt the Bassett clarinet and to record the concerto uh, on it with uh, the Brandenburg Orchestra back in 2001.
0: Well, yes, and I've, I've heard Craig talking about this. And when you just consider the date, I mean, obviously, 1997 is just six years after the 1991 discovery of that image. You know, it's not long afterwards. But um, but Craig has spoken about it and, and that he was actually in the process of commissioning an instrument for himself. And uh, mid-commission, this image came out. And so the, the actual shape of the instrument, the conception of the instrument that was going to be made for Craig uh, fundamentally changed because all of those things informed then um a whole lot of other decisions that um that, that had to be modified
1: well yeah so it just shows you how i guess cutting-edge research feeds into cutting-edge performance and even with some things that date from more than 200 years ago 250 years ago um it's uh new research is bringing things to light all the time which we can actually apply in really practical ways in modern performance And I
0: I just love that idea of the concert program as being the thing that actually, uh, you know, uh, saved this information, this vital information as to what was the instrument that Mozart uh, wrote for and what was the instrument that Stadler was actually playing. You know, no one would would think maybe these days that uh, the concert program that they hold in their hands, if indeed they're lucky to have a printed concert program these days, uh, the concert program is going to hold the vital information as (laughs) to how to recreate the music.
1: Yeah, I feel kind of vindicated as a musicologist to think that (laughs) that kind of documentary evidence actually turns up something really vital um, centuries later.
0: Now, in terms of then the instrument and Stadler and and this collaboration that there would have been between Stadler and and Mozart, maybe you can talk a little bit about their relationship and and what inspired this piece and or, you know, why Mozart was writing for Stadler in the first place.
1: Yeah, Stander was a, a really significant virtuoso on in the instrument. It was still a relatively new piece of technology. Any kind of clarinet was still relatively new. Um, the first clarinets appeared around 1700, but they were pretty basic uh, and just developments of an earlier instrument, the shalomo. Um, and they didn't really become significant orchestral instruments until about the 1760s and 70s. In fact, um, they had military band clarinets in Salzburg where he grew up, but they were very basic instruments. And so, the idea of it, of the clarinet as an artistic instrument that you would have in a proper orchestra was still quite new when uh, Mozart was a young man. And so the development of the The technology technology of the instrument is one of the interesting things through this period. So we can see this experimental design going on where Stadler actually collaborated with a a Viennese instrument maker called Lotz to develop um, what he thought would be the superior kind of clarinet, although it didn't catch on with other players in the long run, as we know. Um, So uh, this is a period in which there's a lot changing, and in that context, uh, Stadler emerges as the leading virtuoso in the instrument. Uh, Mozart liked him a lot personally. They hung out together quite a bit. Mozart's wife, Constanza, actually thought Stadler was a bit of a bad influence on him, that they they did a bit too much drinking and gambling and playing billiards and so forth. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, they were close friends and Mozart clearly respected Stadler's playing and his musicianship very highly. And uh, they must have collaborated quite closely on the composition of not only the concerto, but a couple of years previously, the clarinet quintet uh, for clarinet and string quartet. Uh, which is also one of the absolute gems of the chamber music repertoire. In uh, fact, so can- and
0: it wasn't always um, uh, uh, so easy between them, though, because we do have anecdotes of, of that exchange between Stadler and Mozart regarding some of the passages being quite difficult to perform.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and this is a bit, probably a bit typical of Mozart as well, that although he's a very pragmatic, professional composer, um, when uh, Stadler complains that the, the music is just not very practical on the instrument, he says, well, t- uh, effectively tough, you figure out how to play it. That's what I wrote. Uh, yes, seems... do the
0: notes exist on your instrument? Yes. Well, then it's up to you to figure out how to play them. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> uh, and Stadler obviously did too. and um, a thing that we never think of now too is that the instrument was not um, a kind of fixed entity you know they're ex- experimenting with the technology and so if there was something that was tricky to do you could go back to the maker and say look can you modify this key for me or add another key with a, an extra hole which will give me an alternative fingering for that note to make it possible to play this sequence of notes in a way that um, is otherwise awkward and they could just do that because uh, they're they're building the instruments as they go along. It's not like you sort of go into a shop and just say, I'll have one of those off the shelf. Uh, you go to a, a maker and have a bespoke instrument created for you, particularly for elite players like Studler, and so he can make have it made kind of to order for the things that he wants to do.
0: Mm. Apart from sizes, maybe, and the varying sizes of some of the junior instruments that are provided for younger players in terms of modern instruments that get made today, there isn't as much variation uh, nowadays as there used to be. But there are still makers out there. And in fact, Andrew Tate, uh, a double bass player and a very fine luthier, is going to be uh, a part of the orchestra for this um, season of, of Mozart's clarinet. And he boasts a wonderful array of, of, of excellence and in instruments um, that, that he's made in Australia.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right, and we do have some very fine uh, makers of both uh, wind and string instruments in Australia. Uh, So the business of making new instruments, of course, goes on, and uh, although the instruments that, um, including up to, to many professional players use in modern orchestras, are... To some extent mass-produced um, particularly the the instruments that our historical players are playing on are generally individually made um, and often on the model of a, an actual historical instrument so uh, you will sometimes see in concert programs the the name of the modern maker and it will say after the um, uh, say yeah, somebody from the 18th century uh, what, on instrument was. Uh,
0: yes, MRT, or, Yes, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's right. In the in the strings and, and yeah. for the winds, it will be Denner and yes. and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> the famous makers of. Uh wind instruments in the 18th century. So it'll be a direct copy of one of those, um, but just uh, adapted to make sure that it will is exactly in tune with the picture which we play now.
0: Mm. And indeed, apart from the video that Craig shared uh, talking about his instrument and, and that whole process that he went through, he also provided Brandenburg with a, a wonderful interview and analysis of Mozart's melody and the way that he sees Mozart's melody working within the uh, the, the Concerto for Basset clarinet that, um, that we so love today day and i strongly recommend uh listeners to to go and look at that article after listening to this episode but um but perhaps alan you could tell us about um the the clarinet concerto and your thoughts on the melody and the way that the music works and maybe you could even answer why is it so captivating from from start to finish it's just one of those works that you i mean once you start you're Basically, you're strapped in for the ride. It's just so captivating. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. that's a $64 question really with Mozart, isn't it? Uh, what makes it work so well? Um, perhaps we should start by just outlining the, the overall structure of the concerto. It's a typical 18th century concerto in three movements, fast, slow, fast. Um, the first movement, like most of Mozart's concertos, is in what's called sonata form, not because it's uh, like a, a sonata exactly, but it's a standard uh, piece of terminology for the way the music is organised, which is a way of creating a large scale form uh, based on a couple of different musical themes, which are then kind of uh, juxtaposed, contrasted with each other and brought to a resolution at the end. Um, One of the ways that this works in the concerto is that you get all of that opening material set up by the orchestra and then the soloist comes in and plays essentially the same thing again. And that's a kind of a model that goes back even to the early 18th century. It's kind of analogous to the way a lot of, say, Vivaldi's concertos are organised. And sometimes,
0: so sorry to interrupt, sometimes uh, letters are used to describe the material that's being showcased, uh, aren't they?
1: Uh, yeah, so we talk about having the um, an A theme and a B theme and so on. There are various ways of, of describing these, but essentially um, you tend to get two main melodies that are used in the, the opening uh, movement and they are contrasting with each other uh, and that sets up a sort of... Um, a way of spinning out the movement to a longer length. Uh, you can set out both of those melodies and then kind of play around with them, move them off into different key areas, introduce some surprises in the middle of the movement in what's often called the development section. And then at the end, both of the themes will come back together uh, and, uh, and we get a, a nice resolution that brings us back to the home key. So that's part of what makes this kind of music works so well dramatically because it takes us on a kind of narrative arc in a way where we start out with some uh, material which almost asks a question and then we uh, we explore that and go off in different directions and finally it comes back with a kind of satisfying answer at the end where we arrive back where we expect to be. But it's how we get there that makes it interesting by going through a whole lot of different uh, journeys, I suppose we could say, and, and sidetracks and so forth before we discover really where we are going to arrive at yeah. the end.
0: And th- th- as you say, the devil's in the detail and that's where we see uh, the, the genius, as they often call it. Of, of Mozart and his compositional technique, you know, able to to provide segues through material and, and places that maybe were quite unexpected, or um, take us on the journey that um, that is so interesting um, each step of the way, um, and then of course creating a satisfying conclusion at the end. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's worth bearing in mind that the music that seems to us so familiar and uh, and in some ways relatively unadventurous compared to some of the music of the 19th and 20th centuries was actually really cutting edge at the time. And the music that Mozart was writing in the seven, second half of the 1780s and into 1791, the year of his death, um, was considered uh, in some respects quite kind of out there. It was music that shocked people at the time. Uh, it was a lovely quotation which I think you'll find in the program notes for this concert uh, from a newspaper at the time which uh, described some of Mozart's late string quartets as too highly spiced that uh, (laughs) who can stand that for long they say as as if um, it's just too much going on and in a sense that is what Mozart's doing in some of the late particularly the late symphonies um, including number 39 that we're going to hear on this program uh, he's technique and his kind of musical imagination in a way is developed to the point where even here at the age of 35, where remember he, he died uh, so young, um, he has already developed this kind of mature, uh, technique and way of understanding what he's doing, where he can use all sorts of complex materials and introduce uh, an astonishing array of of ideas, all one on top of the other, and yet make it sound completely coherent. And I think that's a big part of the, uh, you know, what we describe as the the genius of Mozart or what makes his music so special and so much more sophisticated, I guess, than a lot of the other music at the time, which can be very competent and really nice to listen to but doesn't have the kind of layers of of depth and meaning that we hear in Mozart and also in Haydn at the same time. Mm, mm.
0: And all of these thoughts, Alan, but just within the first movement, I mean we haven't even talked about the Idagio or the the final rondo um, allegro yet.
1: Yeah, that's right. So just to complete the story of the structure of the concerto as a whole, uh, so all of that that we were just talking about was to do with the first movement. So then there is this wonderful lyrical um, slow movement, the adagio, uh, which is almost like a, a sa- uh, like an operatic aria. Uh, and then finally, a joyful rondo in a fast tempo, which is kind of like a, a set of variations on what feels like a lively dance tune. Uh, so it's real contrast, and uh, that's part of the secret also, to, I think, to, to what makes this music so interesting and kind of keeps our attention all the time.
0: Of course. In terms of Mozart's maturity and, and what you were talking about in... Uh, Yes, as a 35-year-old, as a he was very young, but it, it's we also need to remember that he was actually quite lucky to have even gotten to that age, and a lot of people at the time certainly did not. There have been books like the one I've been reading uh, recently, uh, What Killed the Great and Not-So-Great Composers, and it's just a fascinating account of, of death and um, mortality within the, the time frame that we, uh, we often look at with the Brandenburg. And it's, uh, you know, the, the the amount of things that could have killed Mozart in his in his life, it's just phenomenal.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. And of course, um, infant mortality was extremely high, particularly in a, a densely populated city like Vienna. And that was one of the reasons why uh, there were major reforms to try and improve the, the kind of health and safety of living in the city in the latter part of the 18th century and Uh, just go on one other small tangent you know the famous story of how Mozart was buried in a common grave uh, when he died um, was not because he was actually desperately poor as people in the 19th century like to imagine that you know a a real composer has to have been suffering (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it was actually because it was a health regulation which was brought in by the emperor at the time as part of his very rational uh, set of enlightenment uh, reforms um, that uh, when somebody died uh, there were not to be Elaborate ceremonies and so forth in the city. They just you just had to have a quick church service, and then they were taken out, well outside the city, to uh, a burial ground, and everybody was just buried there and then in a common grave. Mm. Uh, that didn't last very long because people were really not happy with that as a way of, of um, disposing of their um, beloved family members. Uh, but it did apply at the time that Mozart was born but uh, or rather at the time that he died but it's certainly indicative that so many of his that that his own children didn't survive um and uh, that was just very very common um if you did make it to adulthood of course you had a better chance of of living uh longer but uh, relatively few people made it to what we would consider to be old age now
0: Mm. I urge any of our listeners to to pick up Joseph Lewis's uh, book because it was just fascinating uh, reading. And, and you do some of these things that you're talking to, Alan, it, it just becomes clear that, yes, in fact, even two of Mozart's doctors died at a very young age, at 29 and 33 respectively. So Mozart even outlived his, his medical advice. You know, it's, 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 <laughs> it, it's, quite, it's quite incredible to think um, that 50% was that infant mortality rate you were talking about, 50%. Yeah. It. That's basically flip a coin. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, um, and I guess it's important for us to bear in mind just how different times were there. That um, these um, things that we consider to be great works of art that have survived from the time um, were not created in a vacuum. They're not kind of objects that stand outside of the history of uh, of how they were created. Uh, and sometimes I think we can hear that in the music. The, the the kind of uh, sadness and so forth that comes through in the music. But on the other hand, there are times when we uh, read of composers going through terrible things in their private life and yet they're able to turn out music which seems joyful mm. and... Uh, and optimistic. Um, So whether that was to do with their outlook on the world or whether it was just the the professional skill of being able to write what needed to be written despite what was going on, um, it's important though to just just keep in the back of our minds that, uh, of course, the the lives that people were living and the conditions in which they were living necessarily form part of the context of the music that they composed. And we've touched on,
0: yes, And we've touched on this before with um, Johann Sebastian Bach and and the way that that he has composed his music and sometimes we do draw um, erroneously maybe even um, analogies and, and connections between uh, events in his personal life and then the actual um, the, the musical results of some of the work composed at the same time and the relation, especially after the, the death of his, um, his first wife, to the, the monolith that is the chikona at the end of the sonata in D minor for solo violin. I mean, um, it, it's quite easy sometimes to draw um, parallels there.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's right. But uh, as you say, we do have to be careful about um, assuming these things as well, because in the case of somebody like Bach particularly, we actually have almost no evidence about what he was actually thinking at the time. We don't have letters and so forth. In Mozart's case, we do have lots of letters that he he wrote to uh, members of his family and so forth, which do give us some of those kinds of insights.
0: And talking about letters and and writing, um, why don't we uh, look at some of what Craig Hill has written on the subject and uh, I know that the first movement is beautiful, but I actually wanted to take listeners straight to the, the Adagio because what Craig wrote about that was, I just thought, very insightful. Um, now, this is one of those works. As soon as I play it for listeners, they will know exactly, uh, you know, and, and maybe even have a particular film that will spring to mind. Um, and it's, it's all, all of the superlatives, ethereal, transcendent, undeniably beautiful. But Craig Hill um, summed it up in a simple way. Said, the question is the answer. The material of the theme itself seems simple, Uh, each section in eight bars, and the orchestra repeats the melody of the clarinet. At first, the rhetorical nature of the phrase is not clear. Is it a statement or is it a question? Maybe let's just uh, let the music do the talking. The Adagio from Mozart's Clarinet Concerto, featuring Craig Hill as soloist from that album that you've mentioned, Mozart's Clarinet Concerto and Arias, with Brandenburg. Almost pains me to bring that uh, down, Alan, and to, and to talk over it. Such beautiful music. Now, you were there in, in the, the concert hall maybe on that night because this was recorded live um, uh, at, uh, at City Recital Hall.
1: Uh, yeah, quite possibly. And uh, it's certainly a, a stunning piece and a stunning recording of it. Um, I think part of what we can... I can entirely understand what Craig was saying about it and from his point of view of the as the soloist you really feel how the shape of that melody works and he has to think through of course as the soloist how do I want to make it sound, what am I trying to bring out here that creates that sense of the the story that we're telling here. Because the music in this period nearly always is not literally a story in the sense of depicting a, a scene as such, but it is always kind of heading somewhere. It's taking us on a journey. And so what is what kind of a journey is that? What are we trying to say with this? And I think what he's picking up on is the fact that the opening of the melody is so simple that um, it's almost like, geez, is that really a tune at all? It just goes up an arpeggio. We go... Up to the tonic note, up uh, up another step of the arpeggio, back down to the tonic. Um, and then we think, all right, is that the question? And then there's another phrase, da 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 further. da what are we going to go now? Uh, so it's arrived back on the, the tonic key, but it hasn't actually finished. Then we get... Okay, now we've arrived somewhere. That's on again back on the tonic. Except that the accompanying strings immediately take off. At the same time that the clarinet arrives on the tonic note... The strings leave and go off in a little uh, slide down to the next phrase, and ba da da dum pom, and off we go again. So I can see what he means about: it. is it a question or is it an answer? And you would kind of expect the first phrase to be the question, and the second, the answering phrase, to be the answer but it doesn't really stop there. And I think that's one of the things that makes the music work so well. Uh, A lesser composer in this period probably would have made it feel like it was a closed system, that we arrive at that point and you could almost stop there. It would be finished. Um, And then you have to find a way of elaborating it, whereas Mozart... And leads us on so that we know that okay it feels satisfying it feels like we've arrived somewhere but it's a comma not a full stop uh it's leading us on to hear oh what's going to come next after that and so then he develops it further Uh, so it's feels kind of satisfyingly complete but we know that it's only an opening gambit it's not the whole story Um, And in fact, smart composers have been doing this kind of trick for quite a long time. Many of Vivaldi's slow movements, again, have some similar characteristics, including that feel of being rather like an operatic aria, Uh, a a slow and either uh, languishing, sad kind of melody, as we get in lots of pieces, or as here, a sort of transcendently, radiantly happy one. And it reminds me a little bit of, say... um, Fernando's aria Unaura Morosa in Così Fan Tutte, which he had written only a few months before, uh, or Pamina's aria ich Fus in The Magic Flute, which he was writing almost at exactly the same time in late 1791. Uh, part of what makes it so effective, I think, is that it opens so in a way that seems so simple and so blissfully lyrical. There are no um, dissonant harmonies or clashes that make us sort of feel any tension or anything. Um, There are just a few aching appoggiaturas where you you lean into the harmony with a a slightly clashing note that makes us just feel a little bit of a a sigh. Uh, And then uh, there are moments as we get further into the movement where the clarinet then just tosses off wonderful uh, ornaments and runs. Uh, that it's almost as if we're watching somebody do an elegant slow waltz, uh, and then they just break out into a few uh, fancy bits of fancy footwork. That you think, gosh, how how clever is that? It looked so simple, mm. and yet. Uh, there's all of this skill and um, a technique behind it.
0: And that probably uh, is a good summation of, of, in fact, a lot of Mozart's oeuvre. Uh, you know, the way that he can take even the simplest of ideas and elaborate them into these long um, pieces because that movement alone, I mean, it's all over six minutes long. You know, it, it's sort of, you know, th- th- that's how do you get six minutes of music out of such a short uh, piece of thematic material?
1: Yeah, and simply by um spinning out from those original ideas the kinds of elaborations and things that do in eventually take us off in a few uh less comfortable directions, I guess. It's a sort of, uh, they they used in the 18th century quite often to make the analogy between music and cooking, that um, it's all very well to have uh, a lot of sweet stuff all the time, but if you had only dessert, uh, then eventually you're going to get sick of it. So you need a bit of spice in there, you need some salt in the ingredients of your meal um, to, to make it more interesting. And so there we get the contrast between the uh, beautiful simplicity and elegance of that opening melody with some of the kind of contrasting uh, flavours that come later on I guess we could say in the movement so that we're kind of pulling away from that sense of comfort and serenity at the opening to explore some of where that leads you know however happy we are in love or whatever it is there are always things that uh Cause some some pain, some tension, uh, but eventually we arrive back at a place of satisfaction and comfort, uh, and which just seems completely perfect at the end of the movement. Mm. And that certainly is one of the characteristics that's often talked about in relation to Mozart. That sense that he can create uh, a uh, kind of take us on a journey in which we. Uh, arrive somewhere that feels at the same time unexpected uh, and yet completely uh, perfect and the only possible way it could have been.
0: Yes, and your cooking analogy there also, um, you know, reminded me of of my first uh, trip to Sweden and uh, and in fact it was the... the Oppressing, uh, popular, uplifting nature of the music that was often being played around the streets and in businesses. I just thought, how can people be satisfied with all this happy music all the time? It's just you know not <laughs> not not possible. That's but that maybe maybe the um, maybe the musician in me that uh, that is desperately seeking to um, to, to reconcile grieving and uh, and all sorts of uh, terrible thoughts within within some sort of stunning artistic display on stage. You know. It's, it's
1: <laughs> well, if, if we any um, Swedish listeners to the podcast might like to write into you, Hugh, and uh, explain what's going on there. Is it because Swedes are naturally very cheerful people, or is it because uh, living in the land of the midnight sun, they they need some cheering up? I don't know.
0: Yes, indeed. And as someone who also was probably in need of cheering up regularly in his life, was um, was Bark's son that I mentioned at the top of the program. Uh, Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, because he did not have um, such an easy life in in the end. But part of it was, I think, some of his own uh, um, uh, making. And the reason why I bring us to W.F. Bach straight away, rather than finishing the Mozart Clarinet Concerto, Alan, is because I see a lot of comparisons, a lot of similarities between the structure of Mozart's Adagio and then the Adagio that o- opens this particular work that we're going to hear
1: at the top of the program. Yes, that's right. Um... Interesting to me that actually the uh, Friedemann Bach piece that we're going to hear was written best part of 50 years before the Mozart pieces that are on the rest of the program from um, the end of the 18th century. And yet it actually sounds surprisingly modern by comparison. Um, it's in quite a similar kind of style in some respects to what we just heard in the Mozart. So perhaps
0: you can tell us uh, about W.F. Bach and then uh, uh, and his work and why that might be, why he was, uh, as you're saying, you know, clearly a, a progressive and, and talented uh, musician, maybe slightly ahead of his time.
1: Yeah, he was the oldest of uh, J.S. Bach's sons, and as um, many listeners will know, there were several successful Bach musicians in the generation following Johann Sebastian, particularly uh, his sons Johann Christian Bach and Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. Um, Friedemann, being the oldest, um, was ahead of the others in his development, of course, and was expected, I think, to go on to a, a some kind of a successful maybe even a brilliant career he was a very fine uh, keyboard player uh, had a job as a church organist early on and it's not entirely clear what happened in his life. Clearly, some things went wrong. Uh, he may have perhaps have been uh, had a, a bit of an irascible character. Maybe he didn't get on well with the people that he worked with. Uh, but it seems that um, his life didn't go in the kind of way that he wanted it to, at least. And he resigned from a perfectly good job, uh, really, when he was in middle age and never uh, had a steady position after that. And uh, that probably um, can... Uh, contributed to him not uh, having a happy life towards at least in the, the latter part of his life um, he also didn't compose as much or at least we, d- we don't know of we don't have surviving uh, nearly as much composition from him as we do from uh, Emmanuel Bach or uh, Johann Christian Bach uh, but the pieces that we do have are really interesting and extremely competent pieces you know he's here is a man who, uh, as the eldest son of J.S. Bach, clearly had a lot of attention from his father. In fact, um, we know that, that Bach wrote quite a few, that Johann Sebastian Bach wrote uh, a number of pieces specifically for Wilhelm uh, Friedemann to learn the keyboard as a child. And I think we we can hear the fruits of that in this piece which was written in the 1740s so uh, while his father Sebastian Bach was still alive um, and it shows off two very contrasting aspects of, uh, of the style of the music of the time um, the first part of it is an adagio very uh, similar as we've been saying in some respects to the style of what we heard in the Mozart and then it's followed um, unexpectedly by a long and complicated fugue of a quite austere kind of character, um, which clearly reflects the sort of training that Friedemann had as a, as a child and a young man from his father, who was of course uh, renowned as the, the um, great composer of fugues of, um, uh, of polyphony during the period.
0: The link between fugues, the Bachs and more specifically Johann Sebastian Bach and Mozart uh, was not lost because in fact in his personal discovery of Bach's music it was fugues that actually caused Mozart I think to really uh, um, to immediately have an appreciation for the music that he was discovering for the first time Um, but before talking about the, the, the music itself in this, this piece, maybe I'll I'll reiterate something that you've actually spoken about before, Alan, and say that uh, it, it's logical that Wilhelm Friedemann would have followed in his father's footsteps because music at that time and the way that uh, that a craftsman like Johann Sebastian was working, I use the word craftsman intentionally, was almost like a, an, a, a, a craft and, and uh, some sort of trade and that v- Wilhelm Friedemann as the eldest son would have been expected to learn that trade and be very competent at it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something, of course, that we're looking forward to exploring further in an upcoming program with uh the the Orchestra, which is all about the Bach family, yes, maybe um,
0: let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. So, so let's
1: we'll save the, the more detailed discussion of that for, for the next time, perhaps. But, uh, yeah, it does what it does show us is that, um, it's not just a matter of kind of talent being passed down from one generation to the next, but you're right that, uh, um, children were brought up in a family where it was the family business, as it were, um, in. If you were the son of a miller, you were likely to become a miller. If you were the son of a goldsmith, then you would be apprenticed to your father or an uncle or somebody and become a goldsmith. And so uh, the, the Bachs were expected to be musicians, and um, and most of them were in one way or another. Uh, and they married musicians and the, the daughters of musicians and, and so on. Um, So that's a a story that we can explore further later on. But certainly um, this is evident in Friedemann's music, that he's very much his father's son. Um, On the other hand, uh, yeah, there are elements in which he is, uh, you can hear that he's of a younger generation and that his music is moving in a direction which Johann Sebastian, although he was familiar with it, um, for the most part didn't choose to do very much this more gallant style of elegant melody and so forth, where uh, Johann Sebastian... Loved his counterpoint and uh, seemed to just enjoy adding extra voices, extra parts, more complexity to every piece that he. Even when he arranged somebody else's music, he was adding in extra parts just for the fun of it, for the almost for the intellectual challenge. I think. Um, So here we get the kind of the two sides of, I guess, the art of the period in the one piece. On the one hand, the elegant, um, languishing melody of this uh, opening adagio for two flutes and strings, and then the Serious complexity and the kind of intellectual challenge of this very complex fugue that follows on from it.
0: And obviously, Craig Hill, being a very fine soloist on clarinet, will not be playing the solo on the flute. Instead, we have our principal baroque uh, flute and recorder player, Melissa Farrow, who's going to be uh, the first uh, soloist we hear of the two flute soloists here in in, in this particular mo- um, in this particular piece. And not only is concertmaster Sean Lee Chen going to be leading the orchestra, but he's also directing um, uh, directing this piece. So it's going to be a fantastic collaboration between some of the senior players of the the brand of
1: Yeah, and that's a wonderful thing to see. And, of course, that's actually how this kind of music would have been performed in the period. As far as we know, uh, it was uh, nearly always just led by the first violinist or the keyboard player. Uh, It was not common to have somebody standing out the front conducting in the way that we understand it uh, today until much later on. It was done to some extent at the um, opera, at the Court Opera in Paris, but apart from that uh, there was very little of actually having a separate person standing up the front directly of the music. It was normally um, directed in the manner of chamber music uh, by the first violinist and or the keyboard player. So this is a nice um, opportunity for us to see the Uh, first violinist, uh, Sean Lee Chen, leading the orchestra in this performance.
0: Now, this is not Melissa Farrow and uh, Sean Lee Chen and the Brandenburg that we're going to hear, but rather Jeanne Lamont and the Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra, a recording that goes back to 1997, just like uh, Craig Hill's (laughs) first performance with the Brandenburg (laughs) of the Mozart Clarinet Concerto. But it is not going to sound as old as it may seem because it is a fantastic recording, and I'll put that on now for our listeners you mm-hmm. I'll keep that going in the background, Alan. It is divine music, and maybe it's the simplicity that um, had me drawing parallels between this music and this theme and and Mozart's theme in the Clarinet Concerto Adagio.
1: Yeah, we can really hear some of the same kinds of things going on in this music. Um, uh, The interesting thing that makes this a bit different is that we have the two soloists, the two flutes, instead of the one clarinet, and that means that... um, Friedemann Bach can exploit uh, a couple of other uh, kind of ways into making us feel something out of this piece to expressing what's going on. And um, I think the he does this cleverly with two different devices in the opening few bars. Uh, first of all, we're set up by the introduction on the strings and then when the flute comes in, it's just almost like this soft voice calling out in the distance. Um but it just stays on the one note on and on and on until we start to feel ourselves getting out of breath almost in sympathy with the player who has to hold on to this very long note. Uh, and that in itself is an affective thing. It makes us feel something, the kind of tension of this um, beautiful note just sitting over the top of the shifting harmonies underneath which create uh kind of clashes against the the melodic note and then resolutions um, so that we feel this tension building up and then the second, Voice comes in. The other flute comes in, even higher, uh, calling out as even more passionately it seems, with another long, drawn-out note. And so we get this uh, this whole thing that we've already experienced once with the first flute, reinforced and intensified at an even higher pitch. And then once we've had that kind of opening phrase that that leads on to, then we have a contrasting passage where the two flutes are together instead of one after the other, and they move more quickly in close harmony in parallel thirds so it's like um, again it reminds me very much of an operatic duet Uh, it's like um, lovers languishing uh, that perhaps they're about to be parted calling out to each other and then they sing together as if they can't bear to be uh, separated that's uh, exactly that that maybe sounds fanciful but it's actually uh, we can easily find parallels for that kind of music in operas of the period and I think that's quite likely to have been in the mind of a composer writing an instrumental piece like this that that's the kind of effect that they may have been trying to achieve
0: it is one of those questions especially as a student that I would often ask myself um, doing any analysis you know what was going through the mind of the composer maybe while writing this what was the purpose what was the uh, the reason for that particular decision uh, because it is a, qu- a question of a composition, is a, so far as I understand it, to be a, a series of decisions, and you 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 know set out a, po- a problem for yourself often, um, or maybe the commission has been set out, and there are particular problems that need to be solved in order to um, uh, to satisfy the the commission, and uh, and in, in in this case, obviously, Wilhelm Friedemann uh, Bach has made those decisions for a particular reason, and was thinking in a particular way whilst doing it.
1: Yeah, and of course we can never know exactly what he was thinking and uh, and why it was written in the way that it was. But uh, it uses uh, a kind of uh, code essentially built into the music, which uh, we know from the people writing about at the time um, was intended to convey particular kinds of things to the audience. So there were particular kinds of musical uh, Phrases that you would use, certain melodic shapes and harmonies and so forth, which were understood to convey particular kinds of emotional states. Uh, Happiness, sadness, rage, joy and so forth were all quite kind of clearly defined and the musical... Um, structures that were used to express those were understood pretty well by the composers but also by the audiences. They were used to hearing, uh, for example, sad words sung to particular kinds of musical sounds and happy words sung to other sounds so that it's, it becomes a, uh, not exactly a language, but certainly a, a kind of codified way of expressing uh, things in music which people understood when they heard it.
0: Yes, because for the purposes of any aria, as we've been talking about these these uh, pieces of music do resemble arias. For the purposes of any aria, there is text, and there are essentially certain emotions and and um, and things that are tied up within that um, that that idea.
1: Yeah, um, and often uh, not only emotional states but actual kind of concepts that are built into the words. So we're not talking about vocal music here, but um, the uh, there are often um, devices built into the the musical structure which also were understood to convey particular kinds of ideas. Uh, so <clears throat> when we get to the second part of this piece and uh, and it goes into the fugue, then there are things in the melodic shapes and the way that the parts relate to each other and build up in layers and, and interact, um, which also kind of express big ideas, I guess, kind of intellectual concepts of, um, uh, about um, the understanding of how the world is constructed, about how um, God makes the world, has made the world with uh, proportion and symmetry and, and so forth, uh, and all of that can also be expressed in music.
0: Now let's have a listen to that fugue because I, I'm I, I haven't had enough fugue today, Alan. And and uh, honestly, we've been talking about Bach for so long over the last few months that um, that I, even though we we've got Mozart for once, I do I, I get <laughs> I get fugue hankerings these days.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's have a bit of fugue.
0: Now I leave the fugue going on there because it really is a stormy one, isn't it?
1: Uh, sure is, yeah. And that shows us the kind of um, seriousness, uh, which also essentially had been a part of Friedemann's makeup and some of, of what he liked in in writing music. It wasn't all uh, kind of cheerful and uh, and lyrical music, um, which his brother uh, Johann Christoph was more um, uh, was more famous for. Uh, it's kind of uh, intense and central German somehow in a way that uh, um, that um, J.C. Bach's music, uh, more, which was more influenced by the Italian style, uh, was not so much like that. And it was more heading in the direction of Mozart in fact.
0: And I feel like um, this music is taking us in a direction back to essentially um, a time in Mozart's life that hadn't yet become catastrophically bad, but uh, certainly was complicated and um, and maybe fugue-like in the overlapping of things that were happening in his life at the time. Um, you what was going on in, in Mozart's life in seventeen ninety one and who was the Mozart that um, that was writing this uh, clarinet concerto that has survived and until this day so so wonderfully?
1: Yeah, the um, it comes at a really interesting time in Mozart's career, that very final year of his life, uh, when after a couple of pretty lean and difficult years, we have to say, uh, at the end of the 1780s, um, there was an economic downturn and uh, things were not going quite so well in Mozart's career. Uh, by 1791, he felt like things were really turning around. He was busy. He was composing a lot. And in fact, um Uh, He uh, wrote, I think, in a letter that he saw himself as being at the gateway to his fortune, that uh, there was the likelihood of uh, an official uh, position at the Imperial Court in Vienna, and that would have really set him up for life and and so on. So things were actually going quite well. Um, He uh, was... uh, Um, Healthy and happy and so forth through most of the year until his final illness, which was only a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, He was probably uh, playing a bit too much billiards and gambling a bit too much and so forth, but nevertheless uh, he wrote very cheerfully to his wife while she was away uh, taking the cure and uh, he was at home working. Uh, He sent her letters uh, saying what he was working on, which is one of the ways we know what was going on. Uh, He during that year, he wrote not only the clarinet concerto, um, he wrote some of the small gems of of music that we love now, including the Motet Ave Verum Corpus. Uh, He wrote two Masonic cantatas. um, And uh, in amongst all that, he wrote... Uh, two operas, La Clemenza di Tito, The Clemency of Titus and The Magic Flute, uh, both of which premiered in September 1791, so he was writing them at the same time. Uh, He'd started on writing The Magic Flute and then got a commission uh, to write uh, The Clemency of Titus, which he couldn't turn down because it was for the um, the emperor's coronation... and uh, so it, he really had to do that and uh, called in some help from um, his his assistant to <laughs> to do some of the orchestration and so forth so he's got that out of the way by September of 1791 and then he has the commission for the requiem mass the, the funeral mass the the famous piece uh which remained incomplete on his death in on the fifth of December, so he was really flat out working through all this period, and he seems to have been, in some ways, at his best when he was working flat out. He uh, he was really kind of into his work and enjoying it, and and uh, turning out music fast, but at an astonishingly high quality. Uh, so uh, that seems to have been what his life was like until um, he uh, he became ill uh, and just over a few days really deteriorated quite significantly and died on the 5th of December of 1791.
0: Yes, and the actual cause of, of Mozart's illness, the, the cause of his death, has, has inspired a lot of speculation and even conspiracies, uh, has it not, Alan? It's, uh, maybe you could tell us about some of those oh. ideas and, and some of the things that are wrapped up in, in Mozart's death.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, the cause of death was registered at the time as, in German, "Hitziges Frieselfieber, um, which means a, a hot or severe miliary fever, where miliary refers to a rash, which looks a bit like millet seeds. So it was basically a severe fever with a rash, um, and that was later diagnosed as a Rheumatic inflammatory fever and that seems to have been what it actually was so the uh, there are various other rival diagnoses that have been put forward um, the most uh, exciting of which, but for which there's absolutely no evidence at all, is that he was poisoned. Uh, so those who've seen the movie Amadeus, which of course famously uh, builds a lot of the drama around this kind of idea that he was poisoned by his uh, colleague Salieri out of jealousy and um, <laughs> uh, that is certainly not <laughs> based on any kind of um, biographical evidence that we have. Uh, rather, it's um, it's one of the many manifestations of building up stories and myths about people who we find interesting and important. Um, and uh, the movie and the play on which it's based, uh, Amadeus, uh, really, of course, are not intended to be biographical. It's not really about, you know, what was Mozart's life like? It's about the idea of genius um, and uh the, and so the, the idea of the conflict with Salieri and, and the idea that Salieri would poison him to, to kind of wipe out this, this phenomenon of nature is really an argument about the nature of of uh, what it is to have that kind of talent. Is it something that is a skill that's built up and, and developed and kind of bursts out of the person? Or is it something which, as it's depicted in the play and the movie, is almost sort of poured through him from by, by God or the muses or something? It's like it sort of pours out from heaven and just... Uh, Emerges uh, through Mozart almost by accident, without touching the sides, as it were, yes. uh, and uh, so um, that's uh, you know part of where the kind of um, stories about his uh, his life and particularly his death. Uh, develop into mythology and I guess part of it also is that story about him uh, which again is part of the 19th century mythology about how you know great composers must have suffered and and all of that to produce great art the idea that he was um, desperately poor at the end of his life and buried in a pauper's grave and all of that, none mm-hmm. of which is strictly true.
0: Yes, let's not let biographical data get in the way of a good story there, Alan. I mean, <laughs> it, right. you know, it's much easier to imagine that Salieri was a jealous and um, and equally capable um, uh, assassin at the same time.
1: Yes, it's a, it's a fairly large logical step, isn't it, between saying somebody's jealous of somebody else and saying they would murder them by poisoning <laughs>
0: But um, but having enjoyed all of all of this discussion and, and indeed um, the movie Amadeus myself previously, uh, maybe I can bring us back to to Craig Hill and and, and his thoughts about uh, the third movement because nothing could be more removed from these notions of poisoning and fevers and all the rest of it than than the concluding movement of the clarinet concerto. Um, perhaps uh, m- maybe. Um, uh, maybe it was happenstance, but Craig Hill himself uses the word "infectious" when he talks about the uh, the the feeling and and the the melody of this final movement. Uh, would you like to maybe build on on that, Alan?
1: Yeah, it's uh, just such a remarkably cheerful opening. It's like a lively dance tune, which uh, sort of bounces away from us almost. We can, uh, it almost makes us feel like getting up and dancing. Um, uh, when we first hear the melody. Uh, And uh, and it certainly comes to a very joyous kind of conclusion. But it is interesting that in a piece like this, a rondo, which is essentially uh, almost like a kind of, Uh, verse-chorus sort of structure where the familiar melody keeps coming back um, and in between we have kind of variations on it. Um, Very often in music of this period, and particularly just the few years before this, rondos were used as uh, a vehicle for virtuosity, which is we certainly get here. Um, But essentially they're just a kind of set of variations on a theme uh, which are all fairly similar. They stay in a similar kind of um, key area and the same kind of mood all the way through. Whereas in this movement, that doesn't actually happen. It's not all fun and games. Um, We get him introducing in the inimitable Mozart manner, he slips in um, devices which we almost don't notice happening, but which completely change the mood, Um, sometimes just for a moment. Uh, And uh, there are uh, minutes where where in the bass. for example, we get a a descending um, stepwise movement, which is associated with sadness. A lament, Uh, yes. That's right, yeah. Um, and then sudden, suddenly we'll get an outburst of, um, uh, of uh, kind of excitable um, shock uh, of, of tempest music, um, like a, a storm has suddenly swept in across the, the peaceful landscape where the people have been dancing or, you know, however we imagine the scene. Um, so uh, he uses this Rondo form with the sequence of relatively short sections uh, to create a, a kind of kaleidoscope of contrasting uh, responses to the original melodic idea. Uh, So again, he takes us on this kind of journey where um, we we might think of the, if we, we imagine the, the whole concerto having some kind of a storyline about um, you know love and loss and so forth perhaps we get a fair bit more loss than we might have expected in this final movement and some shocks and surprises and uh, and uh, challenges to go through before we finally arrive at the, the destination and that sort of satisfying conclusion where we return to the original cheerful melody.
0: Well, let's have a listen to Craig Hill again, Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra and, um, and uh, try and keep an ear out for some of those things like the lament you mentioned. We have it, Alan. Your Levent.
1: That's right. Yes. Well, Craig's love it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Interesting to notice just before the, that passage um, where we finished listening. Just then, it's also a very low part of the melody in the clarinet, in the bass clarinet, and that's a passage which in the modern versions is always played an octave higher because it uses all those notes that simply don't exist on the modern clarinet and so it gives us uh, that lovely contrast um, between the really sort of almost gloomy sound right down in the baritone register of that phrase which then can then contrast with the dazzling soprano of the the leap up to the to the higher runs it the um, in the contrasting passages
0: and indeed it's the technical aspect of how difficult it is to produce those notes that um that even requires craig for example to um to be seated in order to perform the on the instrument to perform this concerto it's just one of those uh technical aspects that often we don't think about when we're listening to this music and imagine imagining how it um uh it might look on stage
1: Uh, Yeah, that's right, and uh, and maybe it's one reason why the Bassett instrument didn't catch on in the long run, because it's just probably technically more challenging to play. Uh, It's bigger, longer, heavier, harder to to hold up while you're playing. Uh, Some people do play it standing up, but I can see very well why it would make good sense to be seated, where you really have more control uh, over the, um, the just the physical um, holding of the instrument, so that you can uh, do all of those wide leaps and so forth comfortably.
0: Now, in terms of all of this music and and uh, and what we've already talked about, Alan, what are you most looking forward to in in Mozart's clarinet?
1: Mm, yeah, there's a. So much to choose from, isn't there? The, and the, the wonderful um, Symphony 39 that we haven't even talked about really today, uh, one of the the last three uh, great symphonies that Mozart wrote in 1788, 39, 40 and 41, the Jupiter, which have all, of course, been played by the from one at one time or another. Um, so that will be a real treat to hear. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing the Friedemann Bach because it's so unusual. We don't get to hear his music much at all. And that uh, is a, a lovely lead into the, the big Bach program coming up later on. Uh, but above all, yeah, the highlight for me is always the, the Mozart Mozart. Um, Clarinet Concerto. Uh, such a wonderful piece. It's just one of the absolute pinnacles of the concerto repertoire and uh, above all for the clarinet. Um, and as a, a former clarinetist myself, I, I can't go past that as the, um, uh, as the thing that I'm really looking forward to hearing.
0: Well you almost spoiled my surprise because I have yet another music excerpt for our listeners which is the Mozart symphonic surprise that is a part of this program the symphony number no. 39 in E flat major uh, I don't know what it was about this symphony Alan but when I uh, started listening again in preparation of this program and while preparing the music for our um, for our instrumentalists uh, th- this is such captivating music and uh, written only a few years uh, prior to the clarinet concerto <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful stuff. And uh, extraordinary that he managed to produce these three uh, late symphonies uh, within a matter of a few weeks uh, across, well, two months, basically, in the middle of 1788. And one thing to bear in mind when you're listening to this is that at the time when Mozart was writing those in the the, sum, the European summer of 1788, of course, Arthur Phillip was trying to establish a new colony to much to the concern of the Gadigal people in um, Sydney, Cove, uh, very close to where this is going to be performed. So salutary for us to remember what was going on here at the time um, in those first uh, not-entirely-happy interactions between the uh, The European settlers and the Indigenous people of the Sydney region.
0: Well, uh, without wanting to dwell on that emotion too long, I'd like to play the, the start, the opening of the Symphony No. 39 in E-flat major because it is so, uh, so stunning. Before that, I'd love to thank you, Alan, because it has been, again, such a pleasure to, to talk with you about, um, about some of Mozart's finest works and a little bit about W.F. Bach too.
1: Thanks you. It's always a joy to talk
0: about this stuff with you. And without any further ado, here is the Mozart Symphonic Surprise, his Symphony number no. 39 in E-flat major, performed by Riccardo Minassi and the ensemble Resonance in 2020. <laughs> And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatory of Music and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra.